Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Cheer Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Mariko Togashi, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy here at the IISS, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're delighted to welcome Bill Emmett and Fenella McGurdy to gain their insights and expertise on a complex mix of topics. Japan's new capitalism policy and the defense budget increased 2% of GDP. We're going to unpack defense economics, the background and reality of Prime Minister Kishida's new capitalism policy, and especially try and see how this economic policy and Japan's economy as a whole can work to achieve the defense budget increase to 2% of GDP. Bill Emmett is an independent writer and consultant. Among his notable positions, he is chairman of the IISS Trustees, chair of the Japan Society of the UK, and an Ushioda Fellow of Tokyo College at the University of Tokyo. He spent 26 years at The Economist, which he joined in 1980, working as a correspondent and editor in Brussels, Tokyo, and London, of subjects ranging from politics to finance, economics, and business. In 1993, he was appointed editor in chief, a post he held for 13 years. Bill is a regular contributor to columns for Last Tampa in Italy, Nikkei Business and the Mainichi Shimbun in Japan, Project Syndicate Worldwide, and occasionally for the Financial Times. He is also the author of numerous books, his latest, Japan's Far More Female Future Increasing Gender Equality and Reducing Workplace Insecurity Will Make Japan Stronger, was published in 2020. Fenella is the IISS Senior Fellow for Defense Economics. She is responsible for the Institute's defense economics research and data presented in the Military Balance, the Military Balance Plus online database, and other relevant IISS publications. Her expertise lies in military expenditure analysis and forecasting, as well as defense industry, equipment, and investment analysis. Before joining the Institute, Fenella worked at Jane's for over a decade, leading the development of their defense economics portfolio. Fenella specializes in international defense industry analysis with a particular focus on military expenditure trends. She has also greatly contributed to IISS publications on Chinese and Japanese defense economics in the last several years with the acceleration of strategic competition and security tensions in the region. Thank you both very much for being here to analyze these two aspects of Japan's economic that, with some strategizing, can hopefully be made complementary. Fenella, What are the key trends in global and Indo Pacific defense spending in the 21st century, and notably since Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And what are your predictions for future global defense spending with the continued war in Ukraine and increasing great power competition and tensions in the Indo Pacific? Thanks, Mariko, and thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Looking at the trends in global defense spending first, between 2000 and 2020, there were essentially four periods of defense spending trends. The first in the early 2000s, which was characterized by steady but low rates of growth in defense spending, and that was then followed by a surge period up to 2010, driven by the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Then the financial crisis hit. We saw the third period, which was characterized by fiscal conservatism and public spending cuts. That was to the middle of the 2010s. And then we saw the fourth period, which was a recovery from that plateau of spending. And that was driven by steady and consistent growth in the Indo Pacific region, but also a return to fiscal health in NATO, which facilitated a return to growth. 
The last two years have seen a marked shift in trend as the world first battled with the COVID-19 pandemic, then followed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just as economies were beginning to recover from that fiscal fallout of the pandemic. Policymakers faced somewhat of a balancing act between strategic drivers pushing defence spending upward last year in the wake of Russia's invasion, but also at the economic challenges that it created that weighed on growth. And that included things like soaring rates of inflation, weak currencies, sluggish economic growth and ongoing supply chain disruption. Looking at Indo-Pacific region specifically, there is a clear link between economic growth and defence budget growth. If you look at real GDP and military spending, both have expanded by around 3% a year over the last 20 years. So when we do see economic downturns, such as those in the late 90s, again, following the financial crisis, we do see an impact on defence budgets. But where the region tends to vary from the West is that in general, defence budget growth tends to slow. We don't really see huge cuts come in, certainly at the regional level anyway. There's usually some countries that still manage to implement enough increases to create an overall positive picture. So Asian spending has been fairly resilient to the tumultuous global conditions. Last year, we did see a slowdown in the rate of growth in Asia-Pacific spending uh, because of mounting economic and fiscal challenges. We did see growth in, in China, but beyond there, where significant growth did occur in 2022, it was generally re- the result of the approval of large special budgets for defence, which is a, a key trend that we saw emerge last year. Japan and Taiwan have always had these supplemental budgets, but we've seen Germany and Poland in the wake of Russia's invasion implement similar funds for defence to supplement the core defence budget. So that suggests that in both Asia and Europe, strategic factors have enabled defence spending trends to overcome wider budgetary constraints. Thank you, Fanella. So you explained the economic situation linked to defense budget in Indo-Pacific, but also resiliency in the region. So I want to dig in a little more on the relationship between economic health and defense spending. Bill, in your views, what is the impact of defense spending on a country's larger economy as a whole? And vice versa, what is the impact of domestic economic opportunities or problems such as debt, taxes, innovation and investment on increases or contractions in a country's defense spending? Thank you very much for having me back on Japan Memo, Mariko. It's very nice to be with you and to be with Fenella. I think that a general way to think about the impact of defense spending is that the first order effect of defense spending on an economy is that this is simply an aspect of government spending, government demand. It is not obviously productive if you like. It's very hard to assess the productivity of defense spending. You have to think about the multiplier effect of that spending on other aspects of the economy. It is more like consumption than investment on an economy. However, that's the first order effect. There are clearly second and third order effects which had come from technological innovation, from spillover effects of the economy, and from building of a critical mass in a defense industry that may then have knock-on effects in the rest of the economy. By and large, it's not useful to think of defense spending, I think, as being a fantastic boost for an economy. It's more likely over time to be a drag on an economy, but a necessary drag in order to preserve security. There's often a myth in popular discourse that, oh, economies love wars because they uh, they produce lots of spending, and that just is absolutely unproven by experience and facts. Economies hate wars. Thank you for explaining the inverse relationship between economic health and defense spending. Vanilla, what is the opportunity cost of defense spending? 
Could you provide some varied examples of countries that have successfully and unsuccessfully balanced a robust economy with the appropriate amount of defense spending? What are some exceptions to this rule, such as the United States? Defense is one of many public spending priorities. With funding diverted to defense, is less funding available for other public spending areas, education and healthcare. And right now, countries are facing acute economic difficulties that's requiring a careful balance of spending to counter the impact of things like inflation and higher commodity prices, supply chain issues. So any increases for defense have to be spent effectively to ensure that no funding is wasted, especially at this time of constraint. So as for countries that have successfully balanced a robust economy with the appropriate amount of defence spending, it obviously it varies according to what the drivers are behind it. If anything, economic growth is a facilitator of defence budgets spending. The drivers fall generally into strategic and political camps. So in terms of the strategic, you're looking at things like the general security environment, threat profile facing a country, interstate conflict, whether it's part of a strategic alliance like NATO. If there is that move towards greater self-reliance, that's requiring robust investment in the defence industrial base and defence production. Where political is the general attitude of the country, the party in power, the electorate, towards defence as a public spending priority. So it's those perceptions of the threat profile that a country is facing. You could use perhaps the 2% of GDP metric that NATO members have as a minimum to say they're effectively balancing their economic growth with growth in defence spending. But it has its flaws. It doesn't talk to the effectiveness of spending, how it is allocated between personnel, investment, R&D, or how it even contributes to the overall collective defence, either within your strategic alliance or even globally. So the other way would be to look at it as a proportion of total government spending. That would determine where defence sits as a public spending priority. So that's the level that's perhaps a more useful metric, gives more of a sense of of priorities over time, where defence sits among the public spending priorities. Where the optimal level is will vary according to that balance of economic, strategic and political drivers. It ultimately depends what the country wants to achieve from its defence, industrial base and defence complex. The main thing is that in an environment where quite swift increases for defence that we've seen since Russia invaded Ukraine over a year ago, we need to see comprehensive development plans. Moving on to Japan's economy and new capitalism, Prime Minister Kishida introduced his new capitalism strategy in September 2021 at the start of his administration. New capitalism was approved by the cabinet in June 2022 in the first annual fiscal and economic policy guidelines, also known as Kishida's grand design for new capitalism, which is essentially a blueprint for new capitalism. For us to better understand new capitalism, it must perhaps be placed against the backdrop of abenomics and the current status of Japan's economy. What is new capitalism? What is the history of the strategy? And what are the pillars? The slogan, a new form of capitalism, is best understood as an election campaign slogan rather than a policy implementation slogan. Because that is where Prime Minister Kishida came up with it when he was running for office as the leader of the LDP in September 2021. Why did he talk about a new form of capitalism? It's a fair question given that many other countries admire Japan's form of capitalism and and often ask, why can't we have the same? But the reason why Prime Minister Kishida came up with this slogan was to differentiate himself from Prime Minister Abe, who had been the dominant figure in Japanese politics for the previous decade and had had his so-called Abenomics with supposedly three arrows of fiscal policy, monetary policy and structural reform. 
In fact, during that 10 years, only monetary policy played a significant role in stimulating Japan's economy and in directing economic progress in Japan. And I think that Prime Minister Kishida wanted to emphasize himself as being, in LDP terms, slightly on the left. In other words, more interested in social justice, more interested in redistribution, more interested in equality, but also wanted to emphasize his novelty uh, relative to Prime Minister Abe. So since he came into office in September 2021, many of us observers, both Japanese and domestic, have been waiting to see, as Ronald Reagan said all those years ago, where's the beef? Where is the content for this new form of capitalism policy? And the true answer is that we're still waiting. There have been various policy papers. There's been a new form of capitalism commission to discuss what this can mean. But it hasn't actually achieved any material form of policy implementation that could be said to be likely to have any significant effect on Japan's economic growth, either the amount of it or or the substance uh, of it or the, the structure of it. I have in front of me a Japanese document from the Deputy Cabinet Secretary for Public Affairs, and he says there are four pillars to realize a new form of capitalism in this presentation he gives. He says, distribute and invest in people. Well, there's no innovation for redistribution of income uh, so far announced, no innovation in education, which is what investing in people would consist of. So this is an aspiration. Secondly, invest in science, technology, and innovation. There, there, there are some measures that have been announced, including uh, funds to support science and technology. I think it would be fair to say that they're not game changers. Thirdly, invest in startups. This is a theme of trying to encourage more entrepreneurialism in the Japanese economy. There's been a lot of talk about startups, but by and large, people involved in startups say that the problem is that government gets in the way, not that government facilitates it, typically by regulatory areas, making failure more difficult and making financing in some ways more difficult. And the fourth pillar is invest in green and digital transformation. These are two common slogans in Japan, GX and DX, I think that they're called. These are the slogans for transformation plans, and they may manifest themselves over the next few years, it's true, uh, with some change. But the right question for our current purpose is, are these measures going to actually change the dial or move the dial as far as economic growth is concerned in such a way as makes the ambitious defense budget easier to finance? And I think the answer to that has to be no, that uh, there's no evidence of any change of policy that's likely to make a significant difference to the potential growth rate of Japan, the trend growth rate of Japan, which over the last decade has been quite low. Japan's GDP remains actually below the 2017 level uh, because Japan had had a recession in 2019, thanks to a big rise in consumption tax and other factors. And then, of course, was hit by the pandemic. It's recovered to the pre-pandemic level, but not to the 2017 level. Since 2007, GDP is only up by about 4% overall, given the ups and downs that have been there. So Japan is in a long-term secular mode of, of low levels of economic growth. But Japan is not currently set up, if you like, to uh, help itself with its defense spending by having faster economic growth. Most likely, we should assume that it stays as it is, somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5% a year, averaging just below 1% a year economic growth. 
because, why? Because household consumption is very depressed, private demand is depressed, business investment is low. The main support for the economic progress of Japan has been government spending and monetary expansion. And monetary expansion is likely to be eased. There's no real sign at the moment that domestic demand is going to provide a big uplift for the economy. So the defense challenge is reallocation of spending rather than um, finding new sources of economic growth. Right. So you hinted Japan's numerous economic problems around low growth. If we assume the pillars of new capitalism was fully implemented successfully, do you think that captures Japan's systemic economic problems fully? If not, how can new capitalism or other policies be improved? The key indicator that um, could make a difference is household income, wages. Japan's essential problem over the past 20 years has been low wages, weak household consumption, which have in turn depressed business investment because domestic demand has been unattractive to build factories and new ideas to serve it. That low household consumption growth rate has been worsened by the emergence of a dual labor market as companies and government sought flexibility in the labor market by making short-term non-regular contracts easier to have with your workers. And now 40% of the Japanese workforce is on short-term and non-regular contracts, which are lower paid and which serve to depress other wages. If you got into a a new cycle of diminishing short-term contracts, increased long-term contracts, rising wages, you could see a virtuous cycle of growing domestic demand, which in turn attracted more business investment, which thereby lifted the trend growth rate of the economy. So our question is, is there anything in the new form of capitalism to facilitate this? In public policy terms, I'm afraid the answer is no. If the Japanese government were to bring in reforms to the labor laws to make it harder to have short-term insecure contracts and encouraged by laws companies to, uh, to shift their emphasis away from this cheap labor form of business model and towards like a more Swiss high-wage, high-productivity capitalism, that would be a genuinely new form of capitalism from a Japanese point of view, which could have the potential for raising domestic demand. The background point, which I should have mentioned already but haven't yet, is that Japan's population is shrinking by three-quarters of a million every year. That demographic change is a drag on economic growth, because it reduces the workforce, reduces consumption, reduces the amount of income available to spend. So you need, in a way, to compensate for that by the employed workforce earning more money and spending more money. If I saw a real sign of that happening, I would start to get optimistic. There are some little kind of glimpses in the private sector, with Uniqlo having announced a 40% rise in wages for employees of their firm, Fast Retailing with Suntory having announced a 6% rise, with Toyota having also announced a a substantial rise relative to previous practice. The question is whether this becomes generalized across the economy and whether it becomes sustainable year after year. And that's what matters from planning of, of defense budgets. Is this sustainable? One year's triumph in GDP growth isn't what matters for defense budgeting. It's long-term economic growth. 
and I haven't seen any evidence yet of a change in the likely trend growth that Japan can expect. Thank you, Bill. I now like to get down to today's biggest question that we want to tackle. After having looked at the state of Japan's economy, Bill, you said new capitalism manages to facilitate the shift towards high wage, high productivity, and eventually boosting domestic demand. Will that offer the economy enough breathing room to achieve the increase to 2% of GDP? Are there any missing perspectives in the current defense budget discussions in Japan? Ultimately, it's going to require significant government spending to ensure that economic growth through the various pillars, but also that equitable distribution and the increase in wages, the increase in consumption that's, that's required in order to create different elements of growth beyond government spending. It's still going to be needed, and that's difficult to manage given the already high levels of public debt in Japan to 60% of GDP, and it's becoming increasingly expensive to finance that. What we saw in the 2023 Japanese defence budget were an explanation of the measures that will be needed to finance this increase towards 2% of GDP by 2027. And that included expenditure reform, the use of financial surpluses, non-tax revenues, and the establishment of a defence capability enhancement fund to bring spending towards the 2% of GDP target. The competing priorities perhaps within this new capitalism strategy or the initiatives within that, they're all really quite expensive to implement and and pursue. So that's all creating competing spending priorities and that may create pressures for spending reform itself, which is that first element that's going to be used to bolster defence spending. And again, these additional off-budget funds for defence, as with Germany and Poland, they do reduce transparency and they can reduce accountability as well. And that's perhaps not ideal, given the heightened geopolitical uncertainty that we have at the moment. Various aspects of funding are being brought under the umbrella of comprehensive defence. And that may fall beyond even the NATO definition of defence, which itself is, is quite broad. So these elements include public security, infrastructure, civil defence costs, the Coast Guard, which NATO doesn't allow you to include in defence, but only under very certain conditions. While countries in Europe do often add in extra budgetary funds to up their percent GDP stats, they do usually fall under that NATO definition. Even with this growth, it's looking to be quite significant. We've already had a significant boost for 2023. And it does present a distinct shift in Japanese policy that reportedly has greater public support than in the past. But there are still concerns that perhaps even doesn't go far enough, given these extra elements added into the calculation, given this ambitious capability development plan, and given the legacy pressures that you have that have been created by the length of time that Japanese defence spending was capped at 1% of GDP in a low growth economy. Ultimately, all of these combine to create perhaps a more pessimistic picture than than the documents might indicate. The significant growth is required, especially as Japan moves towards being self-reliant, ensuring their own defence. But it might just be that the time frame is too short because the investment hasn't been there over the last 10 years. Thank you, Fenella. The more I hear about the number and the scale of competing priorities in Japan, the sadder I become as a Japanese. I think it's a time to ask the question of how exactly. A lot has been discussed about the ways to achieve this 2% target in Japan, such as tax increases, debt financing, but most are, of course, unpopular. And a bigger concern is that each of these measures will have impact on other elements. For example, increasing corporate tax would damage companies' ability to increase wages. So Bill, how can the administration 
reconcile these goals with limited resource with the need to address the plethora of critical economic issues in Japan? Well, that's the 640 trillion trillion yen question. That is the difficulty. The fact is that with low growth, you have more difficult political choices. You have more likely that you're going to run up against uh, painful cuts in spending and painful rejections of otherwise positive proposals for like green investment funds or digital transformation funds or science and technology investment or startup support. As Fenella said, these new form of capitalism efficiencies are all expensive as well. And by the way, we haven't mentioned that Prime Minister Kishida's other big announcement was supposedly a big increase in spending on childcare and the encouragement of fertility. Nevertheless, these are a whole lot of political choices that need to be made. Now, how is it going to be done? I guess my prediction would be that the least unpopular of all of those options remains debt financing. The key question is whether or not the cost of debt financing can be kept down sufficiently to make it continue to be viable as of the provider of that financing on the margin for increases in spending. Second point to make is that, as actually Fenella implies with her question about NATO measurements, there's quite a bit of wriggle room as to what 2% of GDP really means. Uh, And indeed, where Japan now is, many people say, including on the conservative side of Japanese politics, that the true level currently is 1.25% of GDP on a sort of NATO comparison. Now, Fenella's the expert on this. I'm sure would tell me how realistic or not that is, but it does depend on things like Coast Guards and those issues that actually have been off budget as far as the defense budget up until now. So it may be the gap is a bit lower, that this is a rhetorical issue, the doubling, the so-called doubling, whereas actually, practically speaking, there will not be a doubling. It will be somewhat smaller than that as the five-year process rolls forward. So it may be that we won't see all of those tough choices having to be confronted. But nevertheless, they will be tough. And I would think that debt financing will be the principal means of it. Probably some tax increases, but mostly debt financing. Thank you, Bill. A little bit of optimism here. And let's assume Japan managed to increase its defense budget to 2% of GDP. Vanilla, you argued in the past that more money does not automatically translate into greater military capability. It is an enabler only. How have other countries managed a large defense budget increase to great military capability? Most countries tend to risk some wastage in major investment drives, not least because they cannot foresee all eventualities. The 100 billion euro fund in Germany was immediately eroded uh, once VAT, VAT, once debt, once other costs were, were accounted for, and has since been eroded by a considerably higher rate of inflation than expected. So any of these strong increases without sufficient planning and and oversight in such a short space of time do risk those inefficiencies. To be fair to these countries, it's not always possible to foresee these kinds of huge geopolitical shifts that then have ramifications. With the underinvestment that we've seen historically in Japan is that there have been areas of concern that have emerged. If Japan does want to be self-reliant enough to ensure their own defence, That might include some personnel increases or force restructuring, where the focus right now is currently more on the capability or the equipment side. Thank you, Fanella. Do you think Japan's defense industry has to play a big role in converting this increased budget to great military capability? 
I think the policy will present both opportunities and challenges for Japanese defence industry. The investment has certainly focused on the civil side in terms of higher technology areas in recent years, or at least over the last few decades, actually. So I think moving now to a more defence focus will take a significant amount of mentality and production shift. The capabilities on the naval and land system side are perhaps further along than on the air side. And that is a very expensive capability to develop. It's one that only a handful of countries globally actually possess in terms of the full spectrum of capabilities. Air is the one that costs most money and have very long lead times and things like that. So it's one that will present probably the the greatest challenge because I think where you have greater crossovers on the naval and land system side, um, certainly in terms of shipping and you know Japan being an island nation, the focus and the investment required to, to bolster industry is going to create those challenges. That's the same that we're seeing in Europe, where these increases for defence that are coming through, there's already questions about the capacity of European defence industry to absorb the funding and whether in the immediate term it will look to things like upgrades and off-the-shelf purchases until domestic defence industry has the time to develop the, the capabilities that are required immediately in response to the to the increasing security threat. So Japan is not alone in this. It's, it's a, a challenge that we're seeing across the world. Perhaps the only country where you might see that immediate absorption is in somewhere like the US, which has that full spectrum and the capacity with which to bring in that extra funding and uh, move towards greater production lines. Supply chain issues are perhaps more acute in Europe than in Asia and, and in the US. So that creates the, the greater challenge of even with this increased amount of investment, even if you had the personnel, you may not have the components or the equipment with which to build those production lines and move towards funding those capabilities. Where Japan is in a strong position is that these key documents, that shift in policy has been quite comprehensive. I think there's a clear goal in mind. There's the list of capabilities that being wanted to develop. There are targets in terms of spending. Whether it can be achieved is this is a difficult side, but the fact that these things have been considered is probably quite encouraging. Thank you. Fanella, you also mentioned underinvestment, which is probably one of the key obstacles to absorb the budget increase, as you say. Bill, what do you think the long-term impact of this low spending on Japan's defense infrastructure, munitions, capabilities, and personnel Even if Japan manages to secure the defense budget, do you think the Ministry of Defense and Self-Defense Force are capable of using it effectively, in your view? It's very hard to say, Mariko. Uh, There's no doubt. On my last trip to Japan a few weeks ago, I went to the Ministry of Defense, to the Boesho, and as I was walking through the gates in Ichigaya, I thought to myself, you know, is this maybe the first time I've actually visited this ministry in my 40 years of living in and going to to and from Japan? And the reason why that might be true, and I couldn't quite remember, was because defense hasn't been a priority. It's not been a major issue. And therefore, why would I have gone to the Ministry of Defense was the question. Really, this is quite a fundamental change for Japan. And our right question to ask is, well, what will it take to make this extra defense spending, or at least this change of posture, effective. And what matters is whether or not Japan can contribute in the short to medium term to the deterrence of China or North Korea in terms of starting conflicts, uh, particularly over Taiwan. And that really requires Japan to move, if you like, to make a sporting metaphor, to move from the back foot to the front foot. Can Japan change its way of deploying its forces 
so that it is a credible contributor to deterrence rather than like sitting on the back foot, essentially back at home base, doing humanitarian work, training, but not being credibly very forward deployed. I think that there's both the spending challenge and the redeployment challenge. Now, it may be that the redeployment challenge is actually a smaller challenge than the spending challenge. Maybe it's the more important one, however, for becoming part of an effective deterrence capability and strategy for allied countries in Indo-Pacific. It may also be that the big areas in which Japan can contribute is through less expensive things like intelligence and cyber defense. Not cheap, but not as expensive as, as building aircraft carriers. And those will take an organizational change, a change in the attitude of the bureaucracy, change in the attitude of the national police agency, hitherto the dominant force in intelligence in Japan, change in laws. So there's a lot to be done. I'm optimistic that it can be done, but and the change in political posture is a very important precondition for it. So maybe on the end, I'm more interested in whether the politics and the bureaucracy and the organizational thinking the the LDP, the establishment, and particularly the military establishment can change their way of acting and thinking quickly enough, rather than whether we can raise the money. The money perhaps can come a bit later. It's the thinking that needs to change. Thinking that needs to change on many levels will take some time. And that comes to show that the document and the budget increase, even if implemented successfully, is just a starter was my biggest take. Thank you both for this tough but great conversation with beef, as I like to think. As much as I want to go on for another few hours, I have to ask you Japan Memo questions now. Do you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan? And the second question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Sure, thanks, Mariko. And thanks for for having me again today. So I would recommend The Economics of the Global Defense Industry, which is edited by Keith Hartley and Jean Berlin and has a chapter on Japan written by Christopher W. Hughes. And it's an excellent piece detailing the evolution of Japan's defense industry, the challenges it faces in light of the legacy policy of self-defense that's served to constrain that crossover from civil to defense into high technology systems and capabilities. The other advantage of the book is that it has chapters on other major defense industrial bases and their development to give context and comparison. To bring in the second question about what people might get wrong, I think the assumption that Japan's defense industrial base would actually be more advanced than it is, given that general perception of the country as being very technologically advanced. As funding is bolstered and the defense build-up plan is enacted, it will develop very quickly, but only if plans do and can evolve as intended. Yes, I'm going to take your permission to recommend, first of all, my own book, which is called, as you said, Japan's Far More Female Future. I published that in 2020. The reason I'm recommending that is partly vanity, of course, but also I believe that the increased role of women in Japan society is an important trend that's taking place, thanks to, in some ways, labor scarcity, but also more materially cultural change and a change in the attitude of families to the education of their daughters, and that there's a tremendous pipeline of well-educated professional women coming through 
in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. No doubt you are one of them, Mariko-san. I think that they are actually going to change Japan more than people understand. Once people like you arrive at the sort of ages that in a seniority-based culture enables you to take leadership positions. And I think that this is a long-term change that's underrated, but it is also important both for cultural reasons and for social ones, as well as the economic issues that we've been discussing today. So I recommend that book, but as a counter to that, I'm going to recommend also a book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, which is by an American living in Japan called Matt Alt, A-L-T. The reason I mention that is the second Japan memo question, which is what do people get wrong about Japan? I think one thing that people get wrong is that people think that Japan is not very creative, that it's rigid in its thinking, that it's somehow old-fashioned, I think is, is a view that's taken hold since the 1990s. Well, as Matt writes in that book, Japan's pop culture leadership, for good and for bad, has been a phenomenon of actually the last 50 years, but particularly the last 20, and I think will continue to be, and we should have perhaps a greater respect for Japanese creativity. And so that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Bill. I think that's a great way to end the session, to have some hopes after facing the tough reality. Thank you again, Bill and Fanella. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at the past research by the Japan Trip Program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese, geopolitics, and more. You can find me at, at Togashi Mariko and our guests at, at Bill underscore Emmett and Vanilla at, at F. McGurdy. Thank you again and see you next time.